bow our heads one more time as we go to the Lord together to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Father, you tell us in your word that the grass withers and the flower fades. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass, the peoples fade and wither. Your word stands forever. So glorify yourself and magnify your son Jesus Christ now to people through the proclamation of your word. Instruct us. Correct us. Rebuke and admonish us. According to your holy word, that we might be renewed in the image of the one who created us, Jesus Christ the righteous. For his glory we pray. recently read a book by an advocate of Christian nationalism who included this observation in his book, and I quote, no society can enforce its laws on everyone. In order for a culture to work, the vast majority of the compliance has to be genuinely voluntary. End quote. I was somewhat surprised to read that sentence in a book advocating for Christian nationalism. So in the margin, I just wrote the word right with an exclamation point. It's like he didn't know how that sentence would sound to someone who didn't already agree with him as he was on his way to making what seemed very much to be the opposite point. I think we've all been guilty of this in one way or another, saying something we meant to be taken one way, but didn't realize would be taken in a different way. I bet if you ask any husband in this room, he could give you four illustrations of saying one thing he meant in one way, not realizing that it could be taken by his wife in a different way. That happens to the best of us. In fact, this morning we're going to see That same thing happened to one of the smartest and most powerful men in first century Judea, Caiaphas, the high priest, who was serving in office the year that Jesus was crucified. If you'll open your Bibles with me to John 11, verses 45 to 54, I'll read the text, try to clarify the story, summarize the point, and then we'll draw a number of different kinds of applications And you may notice that I'm stopping at verse 54. I had planned to stop at verse 57, but sometimes you realize that you divided the text wrongly and that you need to call an audible, and so I'm stopping a little bit short of where I thought I was going to stop, and we'll pick it up in verse 55 next week. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us, John 11, 45 to 54. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did in raising Lazarus, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Literally, what are we doing? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, 
they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So in chapter 10, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy, demeaning God by claiming to be one with him personally. Jesus escaped their clutches by fleeing to the land beyond the Jordan River. But while he was away, word got to him there that his friend Lazarus was deathly ill. When Lazarus died, Jesus risked his own life by returning to Bethany, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, where all the Jews were ready to kill him, stone him right on the spot. Lots of Jerusalem Jews knew Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. So there were lots of Jerusalem Jews there in Bethany to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were there mourning with Lazarus' sisters over his death. They follow the sisters to the tomb, and they see Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of those Jerusalem Jews believed in Jesus as the Son of God based on what they saw him do for Lazarus, but others in verse 46 run and basically tattle on him to the Pharisees as if Jesus had done something wrong. He's up to his old tricks. Do something. So in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather together the whole Jewish council, which is called the Sanhedrin, to decide what they should do about Jesus. Now, who are these people? Well, the chief priests were probably some combination of ex-high priests that were no longer serving in office, and also priests from influential families along with permanent temple staff, the current high priest, Caiaphas, captain of the temple guard, the directors of weekly schedule for priestly service, that everybody, every priest knew which two weeks they were on duty. The Pharisees were like a political party who wanted everybody to follow their interpretation of Genesis to Deuteronomy, especially their application of ritual purity laws. They were so concerned about obedience to God's law that they added their own traditions to help them and other people not disobey God's law. They considered their traditions just as binding as God's law. These traditions... Help us obey God's law, therefore they are as binding on you as the law itself. The council itself, again called the Sanhedrin, was a cultural holdover from the 70 elders Moses appointed to help him judge hard cases. In Jesus' day, this council was made up of chief priests, influential aristocrats, scribes who were scholar experts in the law. This whole group, the Council of Sanhedrin, was about 70 or so religious leaders, and they were, in, they were tasked with interpreting and applying the Jewish law in religious and sometimes legal situations. That's why the scribes were there. So this is not just half a dozen guys. And this is not just uh, some people who kind of might know what they're doing and not, might not know what they're doing. This is at least 70 powerful men in Jewish religion and politics. These are arguably the most powerful men in Jerusalem. It's a potentially intimidating group. And here they all are gathered to decide Jesus' fate. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convene a full meeting of the council, or the Sanhedrin, and they open the meeting by putting the question on the floor in verse 47. What are we to do? Or maybe more literally, what are we doing? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is not going anywhere good, guys. You see their concern. Jesus is doing so many miracles in front of so many people, capped off by this recent resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, that he has developed a significant following. 
So if you're an unbeliever listening to this, glad you're here. I just want you to notice something here in the Bible. Jesus' enemies are not disputing that he's doing miracles. There is nobody in the Sanhedrin that is saying, hey, let's just deny that he's doing all this stuff. That's unrealistic to them because they know, everybody knows, Jesus is doing miracles. This stuff isn't happening in a corner. They know it. Everybody else knows it. Jesus is doing miracles. A lot of them. Many. So it is the reality of Jesus' miracles that is the reason for their concern to do away with him. You see? Nobody in the first century was denying that Jesus was doing miracles, not even his powerful enemies. That was not a significant tact to use in opposing Jesus. Oh, he just didn't do them. No, 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 it was none of that. They knew better. He's doing so many signs that if the Sanhedrin lets Jesus go unchecked, people are going to keep flocking to him and everybody's going to believe in him. And of course, when they say, what are we to do about Jesus? Our first response as Christian readers is, I know what you should do about him. You should believe in him. You should trust in him. You should submit to him. You should obey him. You should resign your office right now and let him be high priest. But he's got to die first. But if we want to put the best face on it, they may think that they need to do something about Jesus because they know Deuteronomy 13, 1-3, that false prophets would arise doing signs and leading people astray. So maybe they want to be the gatekeepers for the spiritual life of the nation. Well, that's a very kind assumption of us to make. But why do they say Jesus' miracles are a problem? Hmm? What do they say to each other behind closed doors? Why is this a problem? Is this a problem because they think Jesus is a false prophet? And he's disobeying Deuteronomy 13, and he thinks they're going to, he's going to make other people disobey Deuteronomy 13? Why are they afraid of everyone believing in him? It's not a problem to them religiously or spiritually. It's a problem to them politically. Because if everyone believes in him, then what? then God will come and judge the nation again for following false prophets? No, that's not their concern. Their concern is, then the Romans will come. The implied fear seems to be that people believing in Jesus means people believing in Him as Messiah, ruler, king, lord, savior. The Romans will see, unpopular, will see popular acclaim for Jesus as a political movement and therefore as a threat to Roman sovereignty. We let this Jesus stuff go on any longer. Rome's going to think we're trying to assert political independence under King Jesus. And when Rome sees rebellion in a province like Judea, Rome sends the army to drop the hammer. Besides, the crowd already tried to seize Jesus in John 6 and make him king after he had made it rain bread from heaven. And he said, nope, that's not the kind of kingdom I'm coming to bring. So the leaders fear that Rome will take popular support for Jesus as political rebellion, sedition. And they'll come to destroy the temple, disperse the nation, and take the land away from the Jews. Jesus is getting too popular for Judea's own good under Rome. So they say, well, we got to handle, we got to get a handle on this Jesus guy. We got to get a handle on this Jesus movement. This is becoming a movement. We cannot let Jesus go on any longer or else Rome is going to march on Jerusalem and we're going to be headed for another exile from the Holy Land. So notice how they put it though. What should we do because of this man if we permit him? If we let him? Now, isn't that suggestive of their mentality towards Jesus? There's a million-dollar assumption in those words. They think they have jurisdiction 
over Jesus. If we let him. Caiaphas, though, the high priest at the time, wasn't worried at all. He speaks up as if he's being a calming influence on the whole council. He seems to think that the chief priests and Pharisees are overreacting, and he lets them know it in no uncertain terms in verse 49. You know nothing at all. I don't know how he said that. I don't know if he was annoyed or impatient, or if he was just kind of arrogant. I don't know if he was like, you know nothing at all, or if he was like, you know nothing at all. I tend to think it might be the latter. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation perish. The sky is not falling. Stop running around all chicken little. There is a simple, efficient, elegant solution to all of this. I've been thinking about this. Just scapegoat Jesus. Offer Jesus to the Romans, and we are saved from the Romans. Jesus will be the sacrificial lamb whose sacrifice will appease Rome's wrath and save us from obliteration as a nation. That's their interest. That's why they think Jesus needs to die. But Caiaphas puts it in terms of you. It is better for you. Now, who is you? You is most likely, in Caiaphas's mouth, the same you who knows nothing at all. The priests and the Pharisees who convene the meeting in the first place and who think the sky is falling because too many people are believing in Jesus. It's better for your purposes, your power, your position, chief priests and Pharisees, to scapegoat Jesus because that way you yourselves become, as it were, the saviors of the Jewish nation. Get rid of Jesus. Position yourselves as the heroes for doing it. Two birds, one stone. Nation saved. Power preserved. Meeting adjourned. Only question now is, where should we go for falafel? They're done. He's like, solve that. Easy as pie. No big deal. You guys are overreacting. Of course, from John's perspective, writing after 70 AD, you see the historical irony of all this. The Jews did end up killing Jesus in order to save themselves from the Romans, yet the Romans came and destroyed the temple and dispersed the nation anyway. Only seven years after Herod's temple was completed in 63 AD. So much for that 60-year building project that everybody in Jerusalem was so excited about. Their fear still materialized. In fact, their solution, killing Jesus, only accelerated their own religious and national demise from God's perspective. For John, then, the irony is not just historical, it's spiritual. What will the death of Jesus mean? In what way will Jesus die for the nation? And what will be the result of that for God's people? Look there in verse 51. John interrupts the proceedings with an editorial comment about what Caiaphas said and why he said it. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. I don't think that John could write that without laughing. I I think John thinks that is absolutely hilarious. He did not say this of his own accord. How did Caiaphas begin his speech? You know nothing, nor do you understand. And John says here, he kind of whispers to you on the back row of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas isn't the, the one who doesn't know anything. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. 
He doesn't understand what he himself is saying or why he is saying it. John smirks at that irony and he wants you to savor it. He did not say this of his own accord. (laughs) But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. For all the control that the council thinks it has, if we permit him, if we let him go on, God, God is the one who is in control of these proceedings. Caiaphas thinks he is taking control. He strides to the rostrum or maybe in the middle of the half circle that they were seated in. Let's tamp it down, fellas. I got this. But he's not even in control of what he himself is saying, nor does he understand the real meaning of his own words. While he's accusing everyone else of being ignorant. You see how unself-aware unbelief is. God takes up Caiaphas, puts prophetic words in his mouth, and then veils his mind so that Caiaphas means something different by those words than God himself means. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Everybody can say amen to that, depending on what they think he means. It is totally true. And yet it is totally true in a way Caiaphas does not even realize, much less does he intend? This is one of the high water marks of irony in John's gospel, and it is a statement of the Christian gospel in the mouth of one who does not even realize what he is saying. John loves this. <laughs> Watch this. God put the gospel in Caiaphas's mouth, and he didn't even know what he was saying. Caiaphas spoke far better than he knew. John's point here is that Jesus did not die to secure the nation politically. Let me say that again. John's point here is that Jesus did not die to secure the nation politically or militarily or economically. Jesus died to secure all his trusting people, whatever their nationality, eternally. He died for, on behalf of, not just the nation, but in order that he might gather all God's scattered children into one. But now that begs a couple of different questions, does it not? What does it mean to die for or on behalf of the people? What does that even mean? To what benefit will Jesus die? Caiaphas means the benefit to be continued national existence for Israel. But this preposition, for, on behalf of, is the same one John uses when Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6:51. And the good shepherd lays down his life on behalf of for the sheep. Or I lay my life down for the sheep. John 10:11 and 15. And greater love has no man than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. For their benefit, on their behalf, in their place as their substitute. 
So this is not national. It's individual. It's not temporal. It's eternal. It's not common. It's holy. It's not political. It's ecclesial. It's not a human scheme. It's divine substitution. It's not merely preservative. It is propitiatory and it is redemptive. In other words, it does not merely satisfy Rome's wrath for the Jewish nation. It satisfies God's wrath for all of God's trusting people, no matter what nation they are from. Which raises the next question. Who are the scattered children of God? Well, for John, in John 1.12, the children of God are those who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. To all who believed in him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were not born of blood, not of ethnicity, not of nationality, not of bloodlines, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The scattered children of God are not only diaspora Jews, not of blood. They're God's elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And they become children of God by believing in Jesus for who the Baptist preached him to be, the Lamb of God who takes, whose death takes away the sins of not just the nation, not just the Israelites. And not for the continued national existence of Israel, but of the world. The world. The other question, though, is what does it mean for Jesus to gather all those scattered children of God into one? That's how the sentence ends in Greek. That he, Jesus, might gather into one. Period. Well, one what? To gather them into one what? Well, he might mean one flock under Jesus as the one shepherd, like Jesus said in John 10, 16. But what is the unit of measurement John has been working with up to this point in the current paragraph? It's ethnos, nation. The centrality of nationality is emphasized by the four occurrences of the word nation, ethnos. Verse 48, verse 50, verse 51, verse 52. Jesus is going to gather the scattered children of God into one nation, one ethnos. That's his point. John will say of the church in Revelation 1.6, he made us not merely a nation, but a kingdom, priest to our God and Father. And again, Revelation 5.10, he hears the saints praising Jesus, singing that he is worthy to unfurl the scroll of human history because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and you have made them, again, not merely a nation, but a kingdom and priests to our God. And Peter says of the church in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. a royal priesthood, even a holy ethnos, nation. Ironically, what they fear, the taking away of place and nation, was God's plan A all along in order to expand his people beyond national Israel. God told Adam and Eve, to have dominion over all the earth, to fill it like a temple with living images of God through procreation of people made in God's image and to rule it all for God's glory. They rebelled. So God started over with Abraham and the promise to make him a great nation. God constituted them a holy nation. He uses that word. At Sinai, Exodus 19, and so Israel became God's new corporate Adam, led into a new and bigger Eden in the promised land with the law as their guide. Okay, here we go again. Let's try to get this right. 
But they too rebelled, just like Adam. Instead of being content with God as their king, they demanded a king like all the other nations in 1 Samuel 8. And under those kings, they became like all the nations themselves. Instead of evangelizing Canaan, Israel became Canaanized. They were worse than all the nations that they went in to dispossess. The summary is 2 Kings 17, 15. They went after false idols and became false. You become what you behold. You resemble what you worship. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. So God exiled them out of the land. But Isaiah saw a day when Jerusalem would no longer be called forsaken, when the nations would see her righteousness, and she'd be called by a new name. She'd be a crown in God's hand, Isaiah 62, and God would gather his people from among the nations, and some of them from as far away as Tarshish, God would take to himself for priests and Levites, Isaiah 66. That's why we had Isaiah 56 read earlier in the service, Isaiah 56. I'm going to gather them. I'm going to gather those not already gathered. And what does Jesus come to do? Why does Jesus come to die? To gather. And so when Jesus came, he lived as the true and better Adam, the true and obedient Israelite who did all God's holy will. And then he died under the curse of God's law, not for any sin of his own, but for the sins of all those who had ever turned from trying to live as their own king in order to trust in Jesus as king of God's kingdom. And these, Jesus is still gathering into his family, the church, from every color and culture. He is reconciling us to himself and to each other, and he is creating in himself one new humanity out of all those who trust in Jesus' death and resurrection as a substitute penalty we deserve for our sins, no matter where we are from or our shade of melanin. Jesus is our temple, the true place where God meets man, and we are his temple where he dwells among us, in us, with us, and for us. And that is why he told the woman at the well in John 4, 21 to 24, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In fact, we, the church, are now God's holy nation. 1 Peter 2.9. A kingdom and priests to our God. For now, though, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in John 11 cannot conceive of the kingdom taking any different form than ethnocentric nationalism with themselves at the helm. And at this point, they don't want it to take any other form. They don't think, think it should. And that's why they want to kill Jesus, to save their understanding of the kingdom. So in verse 53, from that day on, they purposed in order to kill him. Not so that God would spare them from his own divine condemnation, but so that Rome would spare them from national extinction and from giving up their power. Not to redeem God's international people, but to preserve what was left of the nation they had. While Jesus plans to gather his international people into one, the Jews have gathered to plot Jesus' death. You see how John's using the word gather kind of ironically? The first, one of the first words in the paragraph. Chief priests and the Pharisees gathered what is Jesus doing? Jesus, why is he going to die? To gather the people of God, the scattered children of God. Not just to preserve what this gathering of powerful Jews thinks should be preserved, the nation. This is about ecclesiology. This is about 
Who are the people of God? And what form do they take? And in verse 54, their unbelief alienates Jesus. He gets word that some of these Jews had told the Pharisees about Lazarus in verse 46. So in verse 54, Jesus leaves Jerusalem again because his hour has not yet come. But it's getting awfully close now. John's point that he wants you to see is that Jesus died for our sins to gather his church together. Jesus died for our sins to gather the church together. Now, I have more applications than I'm comfortable sharing with you in numbers, so I'm just going to do them. If you're a skeptic of Christianity, I have an application for you so that you don't get bored waiting for an application that applies to you. The reality of Jesus' miracles was the reason that they killed him. His enemies killed him for that reason. So again, if you're an unbelieving skeptic of Christianity, just Will you just humor me a minute and read John eleven forty seven? 47? This man performs many signs. That's not Peter talking. That's not James or John talking. That's not the Apostle Paul talking. That's the enemies of Jesus gathered against him in order to figure out how to get rid of him. And that's the reason they feel like they got to get rid of him. He's doing a lot of signs in front of a lot of people. This is public And friend, these are the best historical documents we have about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Just consider that. Jesus' enemies did not challenge the reality of Jesus' miracles. They were challenged by the reality of Jesus' miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. People are seeing him do all this stuff, and it's not just backwoods rednecks. It's cosmopolitan people from Jerusalem seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from four days dead. That was not just a mass hallucination. I mean, you don't talk about mass hallucinations when you look at things that happen in mob scenes, do you? Was what you saw on the news a couple years ago in the riots a mass hallucination? Your reaction to that statement is exactly how a first century person would react if you said, ah, that was just a mass hallucination when you guys saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. (laughs) They'd be like, (laughs) Jesus' enemies can't deny it. That's why they want him dead. J.C. Ryle wisely said at the end of the 1800s, when Darwinism was starting to affect people's belief in the Bible, when German higher criticism was starting to become in vogue in American pulpits, Ryle wisely said, can we doubt that they would have denied the truth of his miracles if they could? No, you cannot doubt that. They would have denied the reality of Jesus' miracles if they could. Nothing would have pleased them more. Nothing would have served their purpose more. Nothing would have shut down the religion of Christianity more for them to have credibly denied the reality of Jesus' miracles. But they did not do that. They openly affirmed it among themselves. But they do not seem to have attempted it, Ryle goes on. There were too many, too public, and too thoroughly witnessed for them to dare deny them. (laughs) Amen. Jesus' own enemies testified to his miracles in the most well-attested historical documents we have of his life, the New Testament Gospels. And yet, unbelief is still confidently ignorant about Jesus. We've seen this all throughout John. Unbelief is supremely confident and yet tragically wrong. 
Caiaphas, the most powerful man in the room, opens his statement with, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. Yet Caiaphas himself is the one who does not understand the very thing he says that no one else understands except him. Ha! And the gospel reader gets the last laugh. Unbelief does not know what it is saying, and it is unself-aware about how misplaced its arrogance is. I mean, you read this, and you kind of feel sorry for Caiaphas. You're like, dude, you do not hear how you sound, do you? Do you hear what you just said? Because that's the gospel. If you hear it right. But you mean it as an anti-gospel. You do not understand that it is better for one man to die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Well, that certainly didn't age well, did it? Today's unbelief will age no better. Unbeliever, you sound like Caiaphas to the living God whom you reject and to the living Christ that you disparage. Unbelief is always overconfident, partly because unbelief insists that self is sovereign rather than God, and partly because unbelief is threatened by Jesus, just like Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were. You don't know what to do with them. There's also a theological application here. Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied the very gospel he refused to believe. That's because God is sovereign over Jesus' enemies. He can speak his truth even through deceptive and self-deceived leaders who don't even realize what they're saying. But it's not just their false words that God can use. It's their evil actions. Joseph said this of his brother selling him into Egyptian slavery after he had risen to power and saved their lives. You meant it for evil selling me into slavery. God meant it. You're selling me, you're evil selling me into slavery. God meant that for good. It's right there, Genesis 50, 20. I mean, that's not my interpretation. That's, That's how they all translate it. That's what it means. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Same evil action you meant for evil. God meant it for good. And the early church prayed it right back to God about the cross of Christ in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the people who wanted to kill him, to do what? What God had never thought about having done? What God could not anticipate? What God did not plan? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's in the Bible. Acts 4, 27 and 28. That's how you pray like a Christian. Like somebody who really believes that God really is God. God was sovereign over those who were gathered against Jesus at the cross. And he was sovereign over those who gathered against Jesus here in the Sanhedrin to plan the cross. Their whole way of speaking, if we permit him to go on like this, assumes that they are the ones in control, but it is not so. Psalm 76.10 was true at this Sanhedrin meeting, even as it was true when it was written, surely the wrath of men will praise you. <laughs> I mean, if you love the sovereignty of God, you've got to love this passage. It is illustrative of God's sovereignty over everyone who hates what he's doing. God uses their wrath against Jesus in order to accomplish his own purpose of taking out his own wrath on Jesus as the substitute penalty for all who will turn and trust in Christ. That is brilliant. That is beyond brilliant. That is is divine. Their own unbelief accidentally facilitates faith by killing Jesus precisely because they cannot control him. They killed Jesus to keep people from believing in him. Fail and fail. They couldn't keep him dead, and they couldn't keep people from believing in him. He rose from the dead, and more people believe in him now than they could have possibly ever feared. Even when unbelief killed Jesus, it failed to control him. 
Because Jesus is sovereign even over those people who gather against him, and he is sovereign for all those whom he is gathering to himself. And that's why you, Christian, don't need to fear what's happening in the nation. Stop fearing that. Who cares if we lose the nation? You have Jesus. Jesus didn't die to save the nation as a nation. He died to save the holy nation. The significance of Jesus' death is also emphasized here as penal substitutionary atonement. It's a penalty. It's a substitute for us, the ones who deserve the penalty for our sins, and it atones for our sins. It covers our sins because it satisfies God's wrath, not just man's. Jesus' death did not just avert Rome's wrath for Israel. Jesus died to endure and satisfy God's wrath over the sin of all those who will ever trust in Jesus and turn from relying on their good works to outweigh their sins. That is the sense in which we mean Jesus died for sinners. That's a very simple sentence. What we mean by that is the cross accomplished penal substitutionary atonement. He died to suffer the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, and he did that in our place for our benefit as our substitute to reconcile God to us so that God would not, no longer be angry at you and me and to reconcile us to God so that we would no longer be ignorant of or angry at him. But for the cross to do anything for you and me, first it had to do something for God himself. It had to avert his anger. It had to satisfy his wrath against you so that God was no longer angry at you. That's your main problem, unbeliever. Your main problem isn't that you're angry at God. Your main problem is that God is angry at you. So if this is not what you mean by Jesus died for my sins, then you do not yet understand how good the good news of Christianity really is any more than Caiaphas did. couple of church applications. John said Jesus died to gather into one the children of God. There's only one people of God, one flock, one nation, one priesthood, one temple, one household, one family, one body. One, 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 one. And that people of God is not national. It is international. It is not geopolitical, it is trans-political. It is not ethnocentric, it is Christocentric. It is intercultural in the best sense and even countercultural. Jesus did not die to save two distinct peoples of God, one based on ethnicity and the other on faith. He died to gather into one the one people of God, and that is the church. The blood-bought church that belongs to Jesus Christ is the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. As white as I am, and I am really white, I am of the same race as a black man or woman who believes in the same Jesus. And that is true of you too, if you are a believer in Christ. And if you don't act like it, you better get on the gospel bus. Because we are a holy nation. And this is the reason that Jesus died to gather his children into one. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day. Churches gather together because Jesus died to gather us to himself. You realize this, this right here, is why Jesus died. To gather 
Now, I don't know how you can hear that and see that in Scripture and then think, church doesn't matter that much. I can love Jesus and be indifferent to the church. No, you can't. You cannot. If you love Jesus, you love what he loves. And you gather with those whom he has gathered. Jesus died to gather God's children. That's a global statement with local implications. It's a truth that drives a command, an indicative, a truth that drives an imperative, a command. Jesus died in order to gather the church, and therefore we gather every Lord's Day to praise Jesus for gathering us to himself as his siblings and to God as his children and to each other as our new family of faith. We love because he first loved us, and we gather because he first gathered us. To not gather together with each other then, or to be lukewarm to that gathering, even when you do gather, is to not reciprocate Jesus' own gathering of us in the way that he would choose. You don't like it when people don't reciprocate your invitations, do you? God doesn't like it when you don't reciprocate his invitation to gather you. The only difference is he gave up his only son to make the invite. And will you give up nothing to accept his invitation? How important do you think this is? Is important enough this is important enough for Jesus to send, for God to send his only begotten eternal son to die in order to gather it. That's how important it is. And therefore, we should be devoted to the church because Jesus died for the church. If we are truly devoted to Jesus, we will be devoted to the church he died to gather. If we really love the gospel, then we will love the church the gospel creates. Jesus' death purchased the church's life. So when you show devotion to Jesus by devotion to his church, Jesus notices. It's not a waste. Jesus loved the church literally to his own death. So when he sees you loving the church in ways that make you die to yourself like Jesus had to die to himself, he sees his own image reproduced in you and he loves that. And he says, that's my brother right there. That's my family. That's my family right there. See what he just did? He sacrificed that to go gather. That's my family. That's what family does. They gather. So, if you say you love Jesus, if you say you love the gospel, if you say you love the Bible and the cross and the resurrection and the priesthood and kingship of Jesus, if you say you love the love of Christ, I love the love of Christ. And then if you act like a minimalist in your church membership and your churchmanship, it's inconsistent with Jesus' purpose in dying for us. Jesus did not die to gather you to people you already loved before he gathered you. He died to gather you together with other Christians you didn't previously know who are not part of your nuclear family. Maybe they're not even part of your ethnicity. He gathered you to them, to us. When you love someone, you take an interest in what they love and in who they love. Christian, what would people conclude about your love for Jesus if they had to gauge it by your love for the people who are here today? I want you to think about that question. What would people think about your love for Jesus if they had to gauge it based on your love for people here today? Surely, Jesus did not die to gather the church only for you to be indifferent to it when it actually gathers. We should also develop a bigger heart for gathering in local evangelism, church planting, and international missions, gathering others to be part. Jesus died to gather his church. Part of being like Jesus is showing a desire to gather others into the church with us. I know evangelism can be frustrating at times, but we are praying. God is answering. So let's keep praying together in our homes, 
and in church that God would make good on his promise in Isaiah 56, 8, which was read earlier in the service. I will gather yet others besides those already gathered. He's still doing that. He's still gathering them. So let's pray he does it among us by his grace. Let's work and plan and strategize and risk for it. Let's see what the Lord might do among us as we take him at his word. A couple of public applications before we close. Public applications for Christians. Christians should not be preoccupied with Christian nationalism. There, I said it. Jesus died to create a different kind of nation than the Jews were trying to save. The Jews wanted to save the place of the temple and the nation of Israel from destruction by Rome. Jesus died to save his international people from the wrath of God over their own sins in order to gather them into his international church, which is visible in local churches. Therefore, your quality of life as a Christian depends more on your church than on your state or nation. Jesus did not die for America as a nation. He died so that anyone from any nation who trusts in Jesus would be counted among God's people in his holy nation, the church, no matter what their common nation might say or believe or do. Religious nationalism died with Jesus on the cross. American Zionism is as wrong-headed and divisive as Jewish Zionism because Zion is the Jerusalem above and she is our mother and she, she is free. She is free. Jesus' death killed religious nationalism by creating the church as the true kingdom of priests and holy nation, no matter what the common nations say or do. Semicolon, however, comma, that does not mean that Christians should disengage from politics or embrace pacifism or only rent and never buy or feel guilty about working for a non-Christian government. This is our second public application. Christians engage with the state under the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with all creation, not under the new covenant. The church is a holy nation within a common nation. And Christians are citizens of both the holy nation, the church, and the common nation, the state. The church is the locus, the focal point of God's special redeeming grace. But the church exists within the context of his common preserving grace, which is institutionalized in the state. So Jesus is Lord, and just be clear, Jesus is Lord of both the common grace realm and the special grace realm. He is Lord of both. Do not go around saying the pastor of this church doesn't believe Jesus is Lord of everything. I do believe Jesus is Lord of everything. We should believe that. We do. But Jesus is Lord of the common grace realm, specifically as creator and sustainer, not as redeemer and savior. Jesus is only Lord as Redeemer and Savior over the special grace realm because only special grace redeems. The end of God's common grace to the common world is what is forewarned in his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, in Israel's conquest of Canaan, in Joshua and Judges, and we might even say it is forewarned in the destruction of unbelieving Jerusalem herself. Common grace is coming to an end, but not special grace. Christians then engage the common world because we are citizens of the common world. We live here. And yet we engage the common world just like 
the exiles engaged Babylon because our true and most important citizenship is in heaven. So, while we are here, we pray for the city and seek its welfare because in its welfare we'll find ours, not the other way around. I want Elgin to prosper as Elgin because I live here in Elgin for the foreseeable future and as Elgin goes, so will I go. Its welfare will be my own whether Elgin ever has a Christian mayor or city council or not. So Christians can build businesses and houses and buildings in partnership with unbelievers not because we think those businesses and houses and buildings will last forever into the new creation. They won't. They will be destroyed when Jesus comes back and and all things are dissolved in the melting heat. We build and plant here because this is what God has commanded us to do in the common grace realm for as long as it lasts. God's covenant with Noah was with all creation, all creatures, and it lasts until the world ends. The new covenant then does not end God's covenant with creation. They exist simultaneously. The new covenant operates inside God's covenant with creation, which provides the space and time for the new covenant and special grace to come to fruition in the fullness of common time. So, we have children. We build businesses. We do our jobs. We provide jobs for others. We buy houses. We vote for political leaders. We can even run for office or enlist in the military. We plant gardens. We cut the grass, we paint the house, we participate on the school board or in the local business association, we get to know our neighbors and care about their cares because in Elgin's welfare and in America's welfare, we'll find our own. For now, while we live in this common world, while we are still sojourners and exiles, this too is part of how we keep our conduct honorable, being subject to every human institution so that when anyone tries to speak against you as a Christian or against Grace Covenant Baptist Church on St. Charles Street for being Christian, they may see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. And therefore, we Christians engage and even cooperate with the common world as those under common grace ourselves, together with unbelievers, enjoying and stewarding God's preserving grace with them, even if they do not yet enjoy God's redeeming grace with us. All the while, we proclaim God's special grace to other people in this common world. We work and pray to gather people from the common grace realm into the realm of God's special grace by speaking the gospel to them and inviting them to church. But we do not think to redeem the common grace world itself because the common grace world is what God will soon bring to an end in judgment. Common grace only preserves the world until the program of redeeming grace is finished. Therefore, you should not be voting in order to make America into a nation faithful to God's new covenant in Christ. That would be trying to make America a church again. Rather, you should be voting in order to make America into a nation that lives in light of God's common grace, which is also provided by Jesus, not as redeemer, but as creator and sustainer. The concerns of Genesis 9, 1-7 should inform the way you interact with God's common grace world. It is better for one man to die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We see now how Caiaphas sounded to God. That's how all unbelief about Jesus sounds to God. Overconfident that it has taken all the facts into consideration and that it's totally in control. But Jesus didn't die because he was a fraud, nor did he die for our this-worldly convenience or our this-worldly power. He died to gather his people into the holy nation that is the church and the holy nation within the common nation. Which raises the question, where do your ultimate loyalties lie? Let's pray together.
Father, we confess that still, as those who trust in Jesus, there are still corners of our hearts that are unbelieving. But we very much want to see unbelievers become believers. We want to see non-Christians become Christians. We want to see people in who are preoccupied and solely enjoying your common grace begin to appreciate your special grace even more than that. And Lord, even we have been unbelieving about your power and grace to do such things. So Lord, prove all of our unbelief wrong and show us that you are sovereign and that you can and will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could think or ask or imagine. For Jesus' sake, amen.